I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Sergeant Bill True. Bill enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1942 and served throughout World War II in a parachute infantry regiment. He fought in almost every major campaign as the Allies advanced across Europe, including the Normandy invasion, the invasion of Holland, and the Battle of the Bulge. In this interview, he focuses on the role of sergeants in the success of a unit. Well, early on, I was a buck private, a rifleman, and a mortar squad. That was my initial assignment for some months of training. Well, the sergeant that uh, most impressed me and struck me from the very beginning was my first sergeant. Uh, I was assigned to F Company, 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment, right after entering entering the military. And uh, he was just such a sharp military guy in every way, uh, impressed me uh, more than any soldier ever had, and certainly subsequently, as far as that goes. He was just a totally military. He was a, a career military. He'd been in the service, I think, 12 or 13 years. He was an old guy, 30 or 31 years old, as a matter of fact. But the way he could bark out the orders and, you know, close-order drill, you know, to the rear parts, to the rear parts, these kind of things, you know, really impressed me right off the bat. And uh, he was so impressive that you just had to respond to him, yes, sir, no, sir, but he wouldn't have it. I am not a sir. That is for the commission. I am your sergeant, soldier. You got that? Yes, sir, uh, sergeant was frequently <laughs> the response. But he was just that impressive that, uh, that you had to respond that way. His name was Sergeant Willie Morris. And uh, when we uh, first uh, got our M1 rifles, they were brand new, still covered with Cosmoline. And, uh, and he took us through the details of taking the uh, uh, guns apart and uh, reassembling them and so forth. As a matter of fact, uh, clear down to the point of reassembling them blindfolded. But I remember clearly that he said, uh, it's all right if you call this your rifle, but I don't want to ever hear any of you calling it your gun. It really is your piece. You can call a rifle if you want to, but best of all, it's your piece. And that piece is going to be your best friend when you get to combat. So I want you treating it like your best friend at all times. And early on, we had to learn the uh, serial number of the rifle. And immediately, you were assigned a rifle. That's your rifle, your piece, and you know the serial number of it. And any lieutenant or any sergeant at any time could say, What's the serial number of your piece there, soldier? And, boy, if you didn't reel it off in a hurry, you were on KP or latrine orderly or some extra guard duty. Yeah, the thing that really impressed me was his bearing. He was just the most military person I'd ever seen, just sharp and crisp. Everything about him said, "Here's this is a first-rate soldier, and uh, I was just totally impressed from the first time I saw him. Uh, yeah, there was a little bit of fear of him at first, but I think uh, it wasn't long before it wasn't so much that as it was just utter respect. Uh, you know, this is a man who knows what he's doing, and when he tells me something, I do it. Uh, that, that was him. Uh, 
As a matter of fact, we were, well, I, I hate to use the term, but very dear to him. I mean, we meant what he was all about, uh, truly. Uh, that came through. That's why uh, it wasn't just fear, but it was mainly respect because you knew he cared for you even when he was reaming you out good. Uh, you figured you deserved it. Uh, uh, he was the kind of guy that just came across the, uh, as totally in command and rightfully so. How did we know he cared for us? Well, I think some of the disciplinary actions uh, revealed it. Uh, even when he was uh, assigning us to some extra latrine orderly duty and so forth, you got the impression that uh, it was not so much to punish you as to remind you, don't screw up like that next time, you know. Uh, at any rate, that's the way it, you got the feeling. As far as going into combat with uh, with Sergeant Morris uh, as the top kick, I couldn't have asked for anything more. I, that was the ultimate I could uh, hope for in terms of uh, uh, a top kick in the company. In uh, the jump in Normandy, D-Day, for example, we were scattered all over the place. Uh, I don't think I saw him probably till at least the second or third day probably when the company gradually got together uh, again. And by the time you're in combat, you're spread out. And I don't remember at any point of combat a direct order from him because uh, by that time your platoon sergeant is re reporting to company headquarters and you're all spread out. And, and uh, you know, even knowing what the, the next squad is doing is a little bit difficult. So I didn't have that much direct contact with him in combat, but everything I heard uh, was uh, jibed with my expectations based on our training. Two tragic uh, things occurred in connection with uh, Sergeant Morris. In Normandy, uh, on the 13th of June, my uh, regiment had taken Carentan, the town of Carentan, which along with St. Mary were two of the critical uh, cities with the uh, road junctions connecting all of the beaches. And we had taken Carentan on June 12th. And on June 13th, there was a big German counterattack. That was a real, a real heated battle with the tanks and all on their side. Our tanks weren't with us at that point. But at any rate, uh, it was a real hot fight. And uh, I can remember uh, a couple of guys in my platoon getting killed, Johnny uh, Supko and Don Davis and one of my very closest buddies, uh, uh, Bob Dude Boy Davis at uh, Stone, uh, Bob Stone, was seriously wounded right, uh, right near me. But anyway, I was working as, by that time, as a second gunner on a machine gun. We'd lost our mortar on the jump. And uh, Ray Abisher was uh, operating the machine gun. And we'd watch for this, uh, the flash from the, the gun on the tank and duck down behind the hedgerow we were on and then raise up and do some. We're shooting these rifles and thirty caliber machine guns at a tank out there. But anyway, about that time, uh, the first gunner, Ray Abisher, spotted uh, a group, five or six Germans crawling up a gully. And I still remember he was one hell of a gunner. He just stitched up that uh, ditch and, and got all of them. But at any rate, it was a real pitched battle both ways. And uh, about that time, uh, an order came down the line to fall back to the next hedgerow. Apparently, uh, our company commander and first sergeant had not cleared this fallback with battalion headquarters. So after we got back to England, 
we were in Normandy from June 6th till the middle of July sometime. And after we got back to England, probably sometime in August, both Captain Mulvey and Sergeant Morris were relieved of their command and transferred out of the company. But the thing that really rankled uh, Captain Mulvey kept his bars. He remained a captain, transferred out. Sergeant Morris was busted to buck private and transferred out. That really, really rankled as a distinction that didn't seem, didn't seem right at all. All of us uh, rather resented us at the enlisted man level, certainly. Uh, if one or the other of them was more responsible for that retreat, surely it was the company commander, the captain. And we liked the captain. This wasn't the, the resentment of the situation was not because we didn't like the captain. I, we liked him very much, too. I had a great respect for him. But the fact that as a commissioned officer, he got to keep his bars, whereas this career military man who had worked his way up to a top sergeant is now a buck private. It just seemed the most disgraceful kind of discrepancy in the treatment of these people. So, yeah, we resented the heck out of it uh, for quite some time. I think it was really simply that uh, commissioned officers were treated differently than enlisted men. Uh, you know, uh, there was a very, very uh, great distinction there. Uh, I never got close to a commissioned officer, uh, and I think it was they, there was an intentional uh, separation there, you know, that uh, uh, that was part of the separation. You were treated differently. At Bastogne, I think it was about, we'd been there about a week. At any rate, I recall it was the first day that the uh, weather cleared and uh, the C-47s were able to resupply us, which was a very happy occasion. And also our pursuit planes the, the, uh, were able to strafe the German lines. Unfortunately, they uh, strafed too close at one point and friendly fire killed uh, Sergeant Morris. As a matter of fact, he was a sergeant again by that time. He worked his way up to uh, uh, staff sergeant in charge of a platoon, but uh, he was killed by friendly fire. Sad ending to the, the finest uh, soldier I'd, I'd known. A lot of things in war, inappropriate, of course, but, but that just didn't seem right, especially friendly fire. I think the fact that I eventually did take on uh, the responsibilities of a sergeant myself was uh, part of the respect I had for him and what I had uh, observed about him and learned from him, uh, because for a long time I didn't want the responsibility of uh, sergeancy at all. I first went into the service when I was uh, 18 years old, and most of the fellows were uh, a year or two or even more older than I was, and I just didn't have the kind of self-confidence that would allow me to figure I could be telling these guys what to do and chewing them out if they didn't do it right. And uh, as the training went on, uh, there were a couple of occasions when I was quite capable. I, I did everything very well. I was made acting uh, squad leader on a couple of three different, at least two occasions. But each time, sooner or later, one of the guys in the squad would mess up pretty bad. And I wouldn't do much about it. Uh, and so back I'd be to a private again. So it was a long time, and it wasn't really until after we'd been in combat for some time, and a lot of the uh, old-timers had been either killed or wounded, and uh, and gradually as replacements came in, there were guys younger than I was. Uh, when we jumped in Normandy, for example, I was 20 years old, and we had some 18- and 19-year-olds with us by then. So I began to 
feel the responsibility that, you know, I know I'm capable of, of being uh, in charge of this kind of unit. I finally gradually felt that I should. And so by the time we got to Bastogne, I was a squad leader and a sergeant. Uh, that was the very slow. That's over two years in the service before I finally accepted uh, that kind of responsibility. Julius Hauck was uh, perhaps the uh, most aggressive of all of we raw recruits when we arrived at, uh, at Toccoa, Georgia, where we had our, our basic training in, uh, in August of 1942. And every morning we had, uh, oh, at least a half an hour or more of, of rather strenuous calisthenics. Uh, I think partly as a way of assessing uh, the men and seeing which one of them might be potential non-coms, whichever lieutenant was leading the calisthenics that morning would ask, all right, who'd like to come out here and lead another exercise here? And Julius Houck, he was, Rusty was his nickname. Uh, He was the first one. And he'd been a skier, apparently. And he put us through some kind of a ski exercise that just pertinent twisted your legs into pretzels, it seemed like. It was a miserable exercise. And the officers called him out to give that every single day after that. So we could, you could see right on that this guy was probably going to be a non-com. And he did. But before our three months basic training was over, he'd PFC, corporal, and sergeant uh, right off the bat. Hauk became a sergeant uh, very early on for obvious reasons. He was a, a very aggressive uh, self-confident guy, exactly what the lieutenants were looking for as a guy to become a, a squad leader or even higher uh, rank. So he fit the bill perfectly. I did everything, I think, as well as anybody in the company. I was a good soldier. I, could, I mastered everything. I, I was expert on the rifle. I did everything very well. But I didn't want the responsibility of anybody else. And that's not who they were looking for. They were looking for the guy who was willing to take on the responsibility, you know, had the self-confidence to know, hey, I can tell people what to do and I can chew them out if they don't do it right. I did not resent uh, Hauk becoming a sergeant so fast at all. As a matter of fact, I was happy to see one stepping forward and and taking that responsibility, which I did not want. Uh, No, I never resented him in any way. And he was was a fine sergeant. He did his job uh, well. But uh, on D-Day, I had just loaded onto the planes, and we were so heavy, uh, as probably most people who know about the paratroopers on D-Day recognize, we were so loaded with equipment and ammunition, supplies and everything, that we couldn't get on the planes on our own. We had to be helped uh, up the stairs. But at any rate, we were, after we uh, were on the plane and were seated, one of the crew members... Uh, had a camera, and he wanted to get a picture of, of our stick, and he did, and uh, Sergeant Houck was fairly near the camera. I'm further away and barely visible in the picture, but uh, he's right up near the camera, and he's making a big V for victory sign, and what is so ironic, uh, within five or six hours after that, next morning, he's the first man I saw killed uh, in Normandy. He wasn't the first man in our company killed in Normandy. A number of the guys uh, were hit by machine gun fire as we came down. and Some of them never even got to the ground, ended up in trees. But he was the first man I had seen killed. You know, we had scattered all over on the jump, and groups got together. And he was with a group of, I don't know, 20 or 25 
man as I was, but my group was behind his 50, 100 yards or perhaps even more at first. But at any rate, his group was attacking some big gun emplacements. And I can remember seeing him out in the open throwing hand grenades. And I thought, don't expose yourself like that. My God. And just about the time I'm thinking that, there's a burst of machine gun fire, got him right in the chest, and he was dead right there. But it was so typical of him from day one. He was the leader out in front and uh, came to a very sad end because of it. At any rate, it seemed to me that uh, he could have been accomplishing what he was after from a much more exposed uh, situation. Sergeant Houck was just a, a very aggressive, outspoken kind of uh, person who had no self-doubts. He he was uh, as uh, self-confident as anyone could be, I think. And uh, that's how he ended up being a sergeant. And that's how he ended up acting the way he did. If he had survived that early combat, I think he would have learned a little caution. But this being his first opportunity to encounter the enemy. And by God, he was going to be out there in front encountering them. So he's right in the wide open lobbing grenades. And uh, unfortunately, uh, it didn't work. He was more aggressive than most. Most uh, uh, sergeants would have exercised more caution than that. Uh, Most everybody would have, as a matter of fact, I'm sure. Although to become a non-commissioned officer, uh, a person had to be somewhat aggressive and and somewhat assertive and uh, self-confident. But he went a little further than than was called for, at least uh, at that time. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.
Sergeant uh, uh, Gordon Mather was another one who was quite aggressive early on at uh, Tekoa. Uh, perhaps not quite uh, the same as Rusty Hauk, but uh, nevertheless quite aggressive. He was three or four years older than I was, 21, 22, something like that at that time. And he was from uh, Indiana, but uh, at some point in his career, he had uh, he had worked in Africa someplace in a diamond mine and apparently had been some kind of a crew chief or head man. And I can remember he still, he, he loved to uh, use some of the African language that he remembered that he used with his crew and so on. I can still remember some of the terms, Buana Makuba, Punjani, and <laughs> phrases like that that he'd throw around. Uh, but at any rate, he was another one that was obviously an excellent soldier, did everything extremely well, and was aggressive uh, and sufficiently self-confident that he also became a, a non-com uh, very, very early on. As a matter of fact, by the time we'd been in training probably six, eight, ten months, he pretty much had the reputation of being the best soldier in the outfit. Well, we wouldn't compare him with our first sergeant, of course, but as far as we people who came in as raw recruits for basic training at Tekoa, he was generally considered the top of the line. And that was true after we'd been in combat uh, as well. And uh, by the time we were at Bastogne, he had, uh, we'd been through, well, we were in Normandy from June 6th to the middle of July, and then in Holland about three months. So we'd had quite a bit of combat by the time we got to, to Bastogne. And his reputation still held. He was considered one of the best. And we'd been at uh, Bastogne just a, a day or so, as a matter of fact, we got into Bastogne at night. The call for us to move up to meet the German onslaught there for the Battle of the Bulge came early one morning, as I recall, and we were on trucks and headed for Bastogne by that afternoon and, and got into Bastogne that night. And we moved through the town uh, into the outer perimeter to set up a perimeter defense. And the next day, uh, my platoon, I was by then a squad leader in, in the first platoon, and so was uh, Gordon was another squad leader in that platoon. And uh, we were going out to set up a defense line, and uh, we were going through some woods, and suddenly a machine gun opened up. And it was obviously a Kraut machine gun because there was never any question. The distinction between a German machine gun and an American machine gun was so distinct. Uh, the German machine gun went, Brrt! I mean, it was rapid fire. And it, compared to ours, it seemed like ours was going rat, tat, 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 tat. It, it was really that kind of distinction. So no question what kind of a machine gun that was. And as we're heading for the ground, I remember seeing a, a little depression, maybe three or four inches not very much, but it was a little depression, and I can remember going into it, and, and I'm sure that really saved my life because those machine gun bullets were the closest I had ever encountered, either before or after. You could not only hear them popping over your head, but I think I felt the air of them whistling over them. We were just digging into that ground as hard as we could. At any rate, uh, after... Seemed like an eternity, probably twenty or thirty seconds. Uh, the the firing paused, and I remember thinking at the time, "I bet they're changing the belt in that machine gun now." And I raised up to look over and see what Gordon Mather and his squad were doing. And just about that time, he also raised up, and I could see him hollering back at his squad, and another burst. 
hit him right in the middle of the helmet. And there was another of our best soldiers. And that one, I remember the, the, the thought just sweeping across me. What in the world can it mean? Our best soldier now killed. It just seems so meaningless. Sergeant Mather uh, uh, was was so impressive, uh, as any really impressive uh, uh, non-com is, because of their self-confidence. They convey to you that they know what they're doing. And he was that kind of a guy. Uh, there was never any question if he, uh, you know, said, do this, squad did it, because that was the right thing to do. And and I didn't develop that for a long time. So it wasn't until uh, by the time we got to Bastogne, which is our third major battle, that I developed that kind of self-confidence. And and uh, and the, uh, the men under me uh, respected me in the same way. I'm sure by then, these were mostly new recruits. Most of the old guys were gone. I, maybe I had two or three of the old-timers still there, but most of the rest of them would be replacements and young guys. And I had no question but that I was capable of providing the leadership they needed, and they didn't question that uh, I could do it. But that I was a long time developing to that point. I think uh, Sergeant uh, Mather, Sergeant Howe, Sergeant Morris— all of them really felt it. I, I think it would be hard to fake that kind of self-confidence. I think they, they uh, uh, I think some people are born with an innate uh, self-confidence about themselves, and, uh, and they end up being the ones that, that lead, and that's appropriately so. I think they truly felt that they were, uh, they were the right person to be doing what they were doing. I think all of the sergeants that uh, that I knew, and certainly that's the way I felt, uh, felt a great responsibility for their men. As a matter of fact, it was uh, their second goal or their first goal. The first goal being to defeat the enemy, second, keep your men alive, uh, or maybe the other way around. I'm not sure which took top priority at what time, but... uh, Yes, I think any uh, non-com worth his salt uh, sees the lives of his men as the one of his very, very vital uh, responsibilities. As I indicated, by the time I became a sergeant, I was among the more mature people in my squad. Uh, there were a couple, three guys, maybe a little older than I was, but uh, basically I was the mature person in every way, certainly in terms of experience and combat. And uh, by that time, I didn't have any doubt that I should be telling the people what to do. I was the one best prepared to do it. And uh, that confidence that came over a period of time that that was so was what permitted me to be what I believe. I I was also an effective non-com at that point. Most of the names that I remember are men that uh, I trained with from Tacoa and was with all the way through. And uh, by the time I made sergeant, most everybody in my squad was a replacement. And, and it's difficult. I don't remember. And as a matter of fact, sometimes replacements a couple of three times. Replacements would have been killed or wounded. I certainly felt that uh, leading them, giving them the kind of orders, uh, uh, doing what I had to do to give them the best chance of not only killing the enemy but preserving their own lives was my, that was my reason for being, and I felt it uh, deeply.
I think I was a pretty good sergeant. It took me a long time to get there, but I think once I did, uh, I was well qualified, uh, knew what I was doing, and uh, and acted appropriately. I don't remember having any particular style. I suppose I learned from all of the uh, sergeants that I observed and and uh, admired, certainly from Willie Morris, and uh, and I think from both uh, Hauk and uh, and Mather. Uh, I surely absorbed some of what I uh, I saw in them, and I knew that I needed to exude the kind of self-confidence uh, that would inspire my the men uh, to have respect and regard for me. So um, I don't think it was any particular style, but it was just probably a, an a, amalgam of all the things I had learned from these other people, and uh, plus my own perhaps a bit of my own personality, but mainly I was uh, uh, doing what uh, what I saw worked. Uh, during the, the time that I was a private in a PFC, which was uh, over two years, I recognized that probably someday, presuming I survive all this, that I will take on these responsibilities. And that was, of course, uh, reinforced by the fact that I'd been made acting sergeant on a couple of occasions. I was recognized as a capable, a very capable soldier. All I was lacking was the self-confidence to uh, assume command and tell other people what to do. I knew what to do myself, but telling other people what to do was the ingredient that was needed. But I felt I was growing as the training went on. And by the time I was made a sergeant and squad leader, I knew it was appropriate and I knew I could do the job. As a sergeant, the toughest thing, even after I recognized that it was my responsibility to take on uh, this authority, I was still reluctant to be the disciplinarian that is really called for. Uh, I would tend to uh, chew out a man a little less, uh, assign him to KP or or something less frequently. Uh, I was probably a bit easier on on the men than than some sergeants. But I think, uh, I don't think that detracted from my ability to, to do the job well. But it just, my personality was not such that I, it always hurt me to discipline people severely. And so that was uh, just part of the way I operated. We lost men after I was a sergeant. Uh, It's uh, never easy to take, but uh, as you endure more and more combat, uh, you realize more and more that this is inevitable. And while you can mourn briefly the fact that you've lost one of your men, uh, uh, you have to move on and... You do. It wasn't until visiting graves many, many years after World War II that it really hit me real hard, uh, men that uh, under me who had died in, uh, in combat. When you're fighting, that uh, has to take a back seat to what you're doing and what you're thinking, and uh, it comes fairly naturally, as a matter of fact, to move on and, and get... Uh, get over it to losing men. By the time I became a sergeant, uh, it was not difficult for me to give uh, orders uh, at all. I felt completely capable 
uh, of knowing what was the right thing to do. Well, th- there would be occasions when there wasn't any real good option of what to do. But at any rate, among the available options, I was sure I was choosing what was as good as anything else. And it was more or less the old uh, infantry adage, uh, do something, even if it's wrong. You know, when you're in combat, the worst thing is do nothing. And so that had sunk in with me. And uh, so I didn't, uh, I didn't have reservations about my ability to call the shots at that point. When I visited uh, uh, Sergeant Mather's grave, uh, Sergeant Houck's grave, and one of the privates uh, who had been quite close to me all the way from Tekoa, Johnny Supko, uh, when I visited their graves, uh, Houck and Supko are both uh, uh, buried at the American Cemetery in Normandy and Gordon Mather's at the uh, American Cemetery in Luxembourg. When I visit their graves, uh, the re- I think the the reason it really comes home is because it really sinks into me uh, what a wonderful life I've had. You know, I've lived to become a, a father of four children. I have six grandchildren. I've had a successful life. I've been happy. And I think of these boys that uh, that never lived that. And uh, it just touches me in a way that in combat you can't possibly feel that kind of grief that comes to you only much, much later. I would like to think that uh, some men are perhaps alive today because I did a good job as a sergeant. Uh, war is a, is a very chancy thing, and, uh, and who did what at what time that made what difference is uh, hard to, to nail down. But yes, I like to think that uh, I provided some, some good leadership that, uh, that helped some people survive, and that is a gives me a great deal of satisfaction. Anytime a sergeant is lost, uh, someone has to uh, assume charge. And uh, I think we really uh, uh, worked on that. As a matter of fact, the, in, a, in a squad, there would always be a squad leader and an assistant squad leader. So obviously, if the squad leader was lost, the assistant squad leader took over. But there were always uh, men in the squad who, who were somewhat more capable and, and recognized that their own responsibility would be, if I had to, I could take over. Uh, so I think there was a, a general feeling among American soldiers that uh, I'll take over if if I have to. Uh, sergeants at various levels would uh, would be knocked out. There was uh, always someone who uh, felt, uh, well, I can move in in this case. And generally, the other men recognized, whichever one of them was had the self-confidence and the aggressiveness to, to take the charge. I think the other men uh, recognize he's the right guy to do it. You, you get to know each other over a period. See, we were in training for nearly two years before we had our first combat. I went into the service in August of 42, and it was D-Day, June of 44, before we had our first combat. So we'd been together and worked together a long time. Uh, and I think you knew everybody well enough that... Uh, Whoever took over was pretty well recognized as the one that ought to. Uh, so that really was not a major problem uh, that I saw. I've heard that the German army uh, 
hierarchy and, and the way they had, had things set up, and I guess it worked all the way from Hitler himself, clear down to the front lines. If your guy above you didn't tell you what to do, you didn't know what to do, and uh, you were stuck. At least that's what I understand. Uh, it worked right down to the combat level. If, uh, if a lieutenant or a sergeant or something uh, uh, was knocked out, uh, the German soldier, I think, was... Uh, at a disadvantage compared to the Americans who knew, uh, you know, we make do. We had a lieutenant at uh, basic training, Lieutenant Havorka. He ended up with a health problem and never went overseas with us, so I, I never saw him in combat. But he had been to military school, and uh, the military school had a former master sergeant from the German army, a German who had been a first sergeant in World War I, was one of the instructors at this uh, military school where Lieutenant Havorka had gone. And he learned the bayonet training from the guy. And so he used uh, some German expressions in connection with bayonet training. And one of them uh, related to a command that he would give. Lieutenant Havorka always gave us, he wasn't the lieutenant in charge of my platoon, but he was the bayonet trainer for the whole company. And I can still remember during bayonet training, during what was called the long thrust, which was you uh, lunge forward with your rifle and take a big step forward and lunge out, shoving your bayonet as far as you can, right through the enemy's chest, right through him. You know, you really, and we would make the, he'd have us do the long thrust, and then he'd make us take our left arm away from our piece, which meant we were holding 10 pounds of rifle and bayonet here with one hand with the rifle stock under the arm here, and he'd make us hold that for, seemed like 15 minutes was probably only a minute, but your arm would be breaking, and then he would say, show up that piece, meaning we hit the gun, gun, hit the piece with our hand, and schlop that piece was the way the German would say, slap that piece, meaning you had to schlop that piece to shake that bayonet loose from all those bones. You had driven it all the way through the enemy, and it was stuck on the bones, and you had to schlop that piece so you could jerk it out. And I remember that training so well. Fortunately, I never had to schlop that piece. My role as a sergeant was uh, critical. I knew that, uh, vital. I was at that point of of where the combat occurred. Uh, so I knew it was a, a critical job. I only grew to the responsibility and authority slowly, but by the time I was a sergeant and knew I could capably carry out those duties, I knew I was a very vital link in the combat action. Uh, whatever happened way up the line, it finally got done out here by the uh, the foot soldier, the infantryman uh, out there immediately uh, confronting the enemy. So I took my job very seriously, uh, and I believe I did it appropriately. The fact that in, in combat, uh, life and death decisions are being made uh, can't deter you from making them, uh, you know, combat is life and death. And uh, again, the old infantry adage, 
do something, even if it's wrong, was ever present in your mind. We must do something. And the self-confidence that had built over time and my ability to do that, to select options among uh, sometimes all options are pretty miserable, but to select the best, uh, I believe I was doing appropriately and so felt a satisfaction. And and I I lost some men or, or felt I perhaps saved some. I felt I was doing what had to be done in as good a way as it could be done under the circumstances. So I, I had a satisfaction from my job. In combat, of course, uh, the life and death decisions down at the squad level, there's not much distinction between whether the private or you are more at risk. Uh, in a sense, the, the, the squad leader is somewhat more at risk because he's got to be in front and leading. But uh, I felt responsible for myself. I, I wanted to survive also. But certainly the lives of my men were, uh, were the vital responsibility I had. So I, I can't remember ever making any distinction between uh, my life and their life. It was us. We were, we were a group and we functioned accordingly. And I just tried to help us as a group do our, do our thing as good as we could do it. Well, I, I, certainly uh, luck has to be considered a, a major part of it. When I stop and think of all of the fine men like Sergeant Morris, Sergeant Howe, Sergeant Mather, who died, you have to know luck was a big element uh, so that uh, uh, hopefully I did some things that helped men survive. But uh, in the big picture, luck was a big, big factor. I really believe that the fullest appreciation of a good life that I've had with children and grandchildren and and a successful career and and everything and still still alive at 77, almost 77 years old, I think to really appreciate that, you have to look at comrades, people you loved, who never got past being boys. Visiting their graves has got to be uh, the most fulfilling moment uh, in terms of gratitude for my own life uh, that a person could possibly have. That was Sergeant Bill True. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director. And Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. 
You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.